This is Hope and Dread Extra. I'm Charlotte Burns. And I'm Alan Schwartzman. Hope and Dread was a program about the tectonic shifts in power in art. We've heard from people who are making change and from people who are resisting change. Our guests were brimming with ideas and off-topic thoughts that we just didn't have room for within the documentary series. But we didn't want to leave them on the cutting room floor. So now we're bringing you a set of short, sharp bonus episodes featuring some of your season favourites, which will be dropping twice a week. Today we're bringing you more from the artist Michael Armitage, who's also the founder of Enkai, the Nairobi Contemporary Arts Institute. Here, Michael talks about his artistic influences, starting with Mwili Aquilina Rojo, a section of his retrospective at London's Royal Academy of Arts last year. In it, he dedicated space to six artists whose work tracks the shifts in figurative art in East Africa from the 1950s to the year 2000. For me, it was important to speak to a history that also had stylistic and conceptual shifts throughout it, because that's something that people really never talk about and think of. There's always this phrase which drives me mad of African modernism that seems to bungle together every single idea that's been spoke about on the continent over a 50-year period. It's it's a little bit insane. Um, Whereas for me, it was really important to recognize the figures within the trajectory of East African art and the changes. So, for example, the artists in this span about a 50-year period from the 1950s to 2000. Obviously, you can't tell the full story in a small space, so we we narrowed it down to six artists that that we felt were important to the story. The older artists who are still alive and still working today were Asaf Makua, and Elimo and Zhao, and they, they both studied at Makarere University under Ntiro, who is a phenomenal figure in East African art. Elimo and Zhao started Payapa, so not only through his paintings and thinking about ideas around that kind of came up with ideas around Pan-Africanism and claiming language you know, to an indigenous culture, claiming a religious history to an indigenous culture, Um, ideas of working together that were very prominent within the politics of of these new emerging states around the continent. And then there was an artist who, for me, was also incredibly important, Teresa Musoke, who took a totally different angle where her work really focused on this symbiotic relationship of people, landscape, culture, the wildlife, all of it working together. And she she found this kind of a mercurial way of painting where the forms are all interlinked. You know, you don't know where one begins and one ends and really speaks to a deeper philosophy on existence. Then there was the artist Jack Katarikawe, who is, a, again, a seminal figure within the story of East African contemporary art. He was taught by his mother, who painted her own home and things like this, worked as a driver for one of the professors at Makarera University, and then was introduced to Ntiro when this professor saw his paintings. Ntiro said, come work with me at Makarera for a couple years, which Jack did. And when when he finished that kind of um, pupillage, really, he then moved to Nairobi, where there was more of a commercial um, element to the art world so he could make a living. 
when he was there, he started working with Ruth Schaffner at Gallery Watatu. And Ruth Schaffner had taken over Gallery Watatu from the three artists that had set it up before. And really, with Jack, began to establish a different sort of presence in the art scene. And there she championed a lot of self-taught artists. But the artists which then followed Jack were Sain Wadu and Meek Gishugu that we're showing in this exhibition. Sain and Meek set up a collective called the Ngecha Artist Collective. And they really were there to challenge the way that language and painting and also written language had been used and adopted a style that was quite coarse and aggressive in a way. And for many people, they saw that as being naive. And that's kind of the way that their work had been framed. But it really was a position. It was a conceptual standpoint that they had they had taken on and pushed forward and then found their own way of working within that. So I really wanted that presentation to track that evolution that then kind of finishes in in this particular presentation around 2000. And then things shifted again you know, after that. And that's a whole other story, which will hopefully be part of what we'll be able to do at Dinkai, is tell those stories. How did you learn about these artists, this East African lineage, if other students today aren't? You know, what changed in the education system? Um, so I was born in the 80s and I grew up in Nairobi till I was 16. Um, and I was very lucky in that my best friend, uh, Rick Van Rampelberg, his mother, with Chilenge van Rampelberg and his father, who's who's an artist and is often spoke of as the first female sculptor in Kenya. Um, and his father was Mark van Rampelberg, who's an amazing uh, furniture designer, but also a collector. And so through that family, I was introduced to the life of an artist through Chilenge, um, but then also what other people made through their collection. And then through... Mark also worked at Gallery Watatu at the time. So I got to see, you know, work of these art, some of the artists that are showing at their, when they had their first exhibitions or, you know, other, other shows that they had at Watatu when it was at its kind of peak um, presence in the region. So f for me, that was kind of fundamental. Then when I, when I moved to, uh, to go to boarding school when I was 16 in the UK, at that time, as one does at that age, I was just interested in making my own work. I wouldn't have been able to recognize the elements of my thinking and my approach to to art that had come from had come from home and the artists that I knew growing up. When I then went to study sort of in higher education on my foundation course, and just before then, um, I had my first sort of experience of seeing Western art and Western art history in the flesh. And I remember being taken around the National Gallery by a tutor of mine on my foundation course and being shown Titian's, I think it's uh, Diana shooting Actaeon with a bow and being told that that was the greatest painting ever made. And at that time, I, I just, I was kind of, I was like, well, it's brown. It's like, it's not very good. You know, it's not very well painted. The proportions are all wrong. It's a bit scuzzy. I know plenty of people who can use color better than this guy, you know, and, and, and that's because my experience of art was very different to the art that I was being introduced to. And there were elements of taste and appreciation of what other artists were doing that I, I hadn't developed at all and hadn't been exposed to. And it took me a while, to be perfectly honest, to find anything in Western art that I related to strongly. 
And it started for me probably with Cezanne and El Greco and then kind of grew from there. And seeing Goya was also something that kind of broke me a little <laughs> and then created a new space for myself. So, so that was where for me, the guys that were showing at the academy as in Willy Aquilina Rojo in that, in that room, the, I, I knew all of their work growing up. You know, the conversations I had had with artists were some of those artists. Um, someone like Teresa Musoke taught many people of my uh, my peers and friends. Um, so, so that was my history that I was coming from. Quite frankly, it was a little bit difficult wanting to speak to that while making work within a a Western art education, just simply because that history wasn't available. And so, when thinking of work in its context and the way it was used by someone like Mik Gishugu. And with the framework and the legacy of a show like Magicians de la Terre, which w was an extraordinary show and there are extraordinary things about it. But when you then come up against a different culture with a different language and thinking through sociopolitical things through a different language that fits this other story told, it begins to be very difficult to see and appreciate the considerations of these artists and that history for what it is, as opposed to this other framework provided. So like that, that was something that, you know, that, that I went back and forward with through art education. You talk about Goya and um, you talked about how, uh, you know, seeing the, the black paintings in the Prado um, was a moment of, you know, profound and immediate change for you. But something you said is, I, I've never heard anybody say when they're thinking about Goya, which is that you understood something about the kindness he must have had to think about people in this way. And I thought that was so interesting to talk about the kindness of an artist to spend time considering society and other people. Yeah. You know, and it, it's also something I see in many artists living today. You know, I, I would say the same of Doris Salcedo, the same of Julie Moretto, amongst amongst many others, you know, where there's a dedication of their life to providing a space for people that would otherwise be totally unrecognized by society, to provide a space for them and their lives to be recognized, and if those lives are lost, to be memorialized. But Goya in particular did that for me, where through observing the incredible breadth of humanity and and people's experience there there was just b beneath what's incredibly dark is also for me this idea that through their presence and through the representation of this people are aware of of that which is dark within themselves and if you're aware of that perhaps that would allow you to treat others better and there's something of that in and throughout his work where, you know, he can be humorous and tender. Uh, he can be absolutely brutal, you know, but never in a sense to damn people, but simply to question the action that is to hurt somebody else in, in, in whatever way to put somebody else down, whether that's violent or psychological. That for me felt kind of, true throughout his practice there are just so many moments in in his work where he's always just saying there is something extraordinarily beautiful in this world and in this life and look at it there really is a 
a, a deep, deep love that 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 runs through all of it, um, even in the anger at society and and things that people do to each other. So f- for me, he he really like sets the sets a bar on that, and that that art can do that, and that some someone in their life and totality of their career can provide such an extraordinary reflection on humanity. You know, is ah. Oh, as an artist, it's humbling, but it's it's also just something that I, I feel like everybody needs to see and experience. You know, it's uh, very, very special. You also talked about um, Jacob Lawrence and the idea here that, you know, just a kind of link here is that ambition. You know, the idea that as an artist, you, you've said you can try in effect to describe an entire culture through a series of paintings and in doing so talk about humanity on so many levels. I think that's really interesting. Do you have that ambition as an artist? Is that something you strive for, to create that space for thinking about entire cultures and you know getting close to something of the essence of humanity? Just one thing about uh, Jacob Lawrence. It's also the kind of how humble the the means with which he decided to do that in. You know, there's there's nothing epic about the scale of a Jacob Lawrence or the language. It's so reduced and so direct. It's extraordinary and so sophisticated, you know, and and subtle. He's he's just he's another one who's who's in a who's extraordinary, and I feel everyone needs to needs to stand in front of his paintings once in their life at least. But for for me, it was more a question of when I was trying to find a kind of a way of making that fulfilled my own search for a meaning and in my own life, um, it was important that when I would make something, that if I showed that work in Kenya, at home, in the place that I'm so indebted to in my life, that anybody walking off the street who didn't come from an art background at all would see something they recognized. And for me, the other aspect, which is purely selfish, is that I love telling stories and I'm not very good at writing, but, you know, painting was a way for me to think about that. As an artist, when you're always having to think on your feet because of the situations you're you're put in, it's incredibly fulfilling and rewarding like that. And so to then to be able to look at the stories of home and, you know, what society brings to the table, the things that I felt are problematic, the things that I feel are also positive and could help in building ways forward, to deal with the imagination that's part of our cultures, um, to deal with all of that felt true to me, but it also felt like I could do something where I would be able to speak to others. You know, I, I, I could only dream of having a practice that by the end of my life reflects on society in any way near as close to to what people like Jacob Lawrence or Goya or Doris Salcedo, you know, have, have been able to do in theirs. And it, I, I wouldn't say that that's an ambition, but if that is a consequence of a life of work, I would be incredibly happy with that. So my final question for you, Michael, is one that I'm asking everybody. Um, the show is called Hope and Dread. When you look ahead, do you feel um, hope or dread when you think about where we are? Um, both. It, it's hard not to be concerned about the direction of many aspects of society at the moment, whether that's to do with a kind of right-leaning politics and nationalism 
to the effects of of us people on the environment to the effect of so-called development on countries like Kenya and th- those things it's hard not to to have quite a high level of concern about that but in the same in the same vein like for me you know j- just if i took us trying to start in kai and beginning the amount of goodwill the amount of excitement um the amount of people wanting to be part of something not because it benefits them but because it they feel that it's part of improving some aspect of society as a whole and that there's also you know generations that expect that as the basic level of existence within within one's own community like th- those are things that are full of hope and i'm incredibly excited by and would like to be part of that as well so i i would say there's there's both and there should always be both i i i would hate there to be a, a place where there wasn't an element of dread because then you're being complacent and in the same you know i'd hate there to be a place where there's no hope because that's bleak and 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 the end of it all so i think it's a a time for both of those for more from michael tune into episode 9 of hope and dread artists players or pawns listen to hope and dread extra every tuesday and thursday and subscribe wherever it is you find your podcasts Hope and Dread is brought to you by Art and, the new editorial platform created by Schwartzman and. The executive producer is Alan Schwartzman, who co-hosts the show together with me, Charlotte Burns of Studio Burns, which produces the series. Robert Bound is our associate editor. Holly Fisher mixes and edits the sound. Additional research has been provided by Julia Hernandez, and our theme music is by the inimitable Philip Glass. <laughs>